Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Josh Marshall podcast with Kate Riga. We had a big election last night. Um, I don't know how much, certainly people in uh, Ohio knew it was a big election um, because the turnout kind of told the tale there. I'm not sure how much people around the country knew there was a, a kind of a big election last night, unless people were kind of like political junkies or uh pro-choice or pro-life activists who who follows. But anyway, there was a there was a referendum, or I guess it's a I'm not sure what they call it in Ohio, but it's it's a, a ballot initiative to uh, change the state constitution. And formally what this vote was about was whether the Ohio state constitution would change so that when the, then when there are other ballot initiatives to change the state constitution, you would need a 60% threshold as opposed to a 50% threshold. So to make it substantially harder to uh, change state constitution through, you know, in different states, they call these referenda, ballot initiatives, propositions, whatever, all, all basically the same thing. So, and needless to say, uh, there are, I mean, on any question, you can always get 50-50, right? But to get, to get over 60% is a big hurdle, certainly in, um, certainly in our politics. And if something has uh, more than 60% support, generally, you're not going to need to have a proposition or a referendum, right? I mean, if, if 80% of the public agrees on something, the state legislature is going to do it themselves. So there's kind of no need. In any case, that was, the, that was formally what this vote was about. But really what it was about was abortion rights in the state of Ohio. Uh, because this November, um, abortion rights supporters have uh, collected enough, enough signatures, actually way more than enough signatures, to put this on the ballot and to put basically a robust abortion rights protection language into the state constitution. Okay, so last night, this is basically an abortion rights vote, even though technically it wasn't like that. And what happened, uh, well, the last time I looked last night, it was like 50, it, it went down by like 57%. By, uh, 57%. So overwhelmingly, i.e. the pro-choice voters won. And uh, a lot of people are very excited about this, understandably. This was basically an effort to short circuit this popular referendum. Um, in November to kind of, you know, 
pull it back, the state legislature to pull it back, to not give the voters of the state that choice. Um, and now it seems, uh, I wouldn't take anything for granted, but it certainly seems highly likely that that uh, referendum will win in November, and then you're going to go back to having a full abortion. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the language is, but basically, abortion will go back to being available in the state of Ohio. Uh, but this isn't the first time this has happened, right? I mean, you go back to just after the Dobbs decision. Uh, going on a year and a half ago, we had that a referendum in Kansas. And this was the, that was the first sort of like thunderclap heard across the political horizon in, you know, in, 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 in this country where it, the pro-choice side won overwhelmingly went into it kind of not knowing what was going to happen, and it was a total blowout. There was another case like this in Kentucky, uh, I think last November is when it actually happened. Now, in that case, uh, it, didn't, it didn't have a lot of practical effect because of what, the, um, what was being decided. If I, if I recall right, the uh, referendum was whether to basically ban abortion in the state constitution, and that went down to defeat. Not overwhelmingly, but by a solid margin, something like 5247 or something like that. Um, so in that case, that was defeated, but you still have a state legislature who's doing the same thing. So it didn't, it didn't have a big effect, but it still showed how in a very red state, abortion restriction can't win a fair vote or any vote, really. Then we had the case uh, in Michigan, again, last November, um, where the state's voters put abortion rights into the state constitution by a big margin. Um, and that is a case where it's not just that abortion rights have been guaranteed as much as a constitutional amendment can guarantee anything, but Gretchen Whitmer, uh, the very successful governor of the state, she had a lot of other things going for her, but she basically used the choice issue on various fronts to leverage Democrats back into being in control of the whole state. What's been a very purple state, um, Republicans have controlled one or both houses of the legislature for decades. And as we know, it was a state that Donald Trump won in 2016 and came relatively close to winning, not, not you know close enough to even have it really be a close call, but still a relatively close race in 2020. So we had this happen. And, uh, you know, as is often the case, it's, it's hard to poll these, these contests because they tend to be uh, off cycle, um, uh, anti-abortion political forces tend to, you know, schedule them overnight on Labor Day, you know, so <laughs> these kind of ridiculous times to, to try to get a very low turnout um, election where they think their voters can can pull it out. And it doesn't work. And this happens again and again. And I think my, my gut told me, and I suspect other people probably thought the same thing, that it was going to be a similar result. But that was just kind of gut. There wasn't, I, I think there was one poll that showed the yes side winning and another poll that showed no winning overwhelmingly, but again, very hard to pull. And um, this just shows us, it, it's, it's not just that like Dobbs continues to have, you know, kind of political juice behind it a year after it came down. It's much 
bigger than that. You know, we have our politics where we talk about Hunter Biden and, you know, which of the 28 states is, is, is uh, uh, Donald Trump going to be indicted in and uh, inflation and China and, you know, what bat is guilty of COVID and all these different kind of things. But when you have actual elections in this country over the last two years, this is the big, big issue. It's the thing that drives lopsided results and lopsided results in states where it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, or at least it doesn't match with our understanding of political polarization, right? You have very conservative states and uh, abortion rights don't just win, they win overwhelmingly. And they don't just win overwhelmingly, they seem to have the ability to drive other election contests. And that remains one of the kind of the big unknowns going forward, going forward into this November, going into for, going forward into November uh, 2024. I think it is widely believed, and I think rightly, that Dobbs was a major driver of the Democrats' surprisingly strong showing in November 2022. But in the nature of things, it's always hard to say, you know, was it, was it the issue in this particular race? Was it the issue in, you know, the Arizona Senate race, the Arizona governor's race? Was it the issue in, uh, you know, the, the Georgia race? All, all these, it's, it's hard to say, right? It's, it's, it's um, you have a lot of evidence, but it's, elections are very overdetermined. Um, and I think the big question, well, <laughs> The big question is how many states are abortion rights advocates going to be able to get this on the on the ballot to give voters a shot to actually address this? Because at this point, I would say that outside of maybe a handful or a handful and a half of states, any state that gets a shot at this will vote for abortion rights. It's hard to say which states exactly. You know, you have certain states that seem like wildly red, like Idaho, but they often have kind of like weirdly libertarian kind of instincts. I mean, my 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 gut tells me it's kind of in the deep the deep south is where um, these referendum might have the might have the biggest problem. But in any case, outside of seven or eight states, it really seems like the only hope for um, for abortion restriction is is just to keep it off the ballot. Just don't let people get a shot at it. But still, the big question is, how much is this going to leverage other races? First, where are voters going to get a chance to make their voice heard on the issue? But where, if, when are we going to see on a broader stage what uh, Gretchen Whitmer and a lot of other politicians and voters were able to accomplish in Michigan, where it reshuffles the political playing field in a whole state or in a whole country. Uh, you know, it is crazy if Democrats are not making it the issue in 2024 to pass a national law making abortion rights the law of the land. Because, you know, Republicans kind of insane in political terms, but they're actually, they actually walked into the breach and they're saying, we're, we're going to do this 15-week national ban. 
Like, we're going to do it. You put us in charge. We're going to do it. So, you know, the people say, well, you know, don't tempt fate. Republicans will do it if they're, well, of course they're going to do it. I mean, it's remarkable. You know, my, my, my co-host Kate has, has written a few articles over the last few weeks showing how, despite the fact that it is now kind of almost universally understood by anybody who looks at, at election returns, that this is like kryptonite for Republicans now. They have to change the topic that, in fact, in Congress, they're making everything about it. They're not just making abortion about abortion. They're making like esoteric budgetary stuff about abortion. Everything, everything's about abortion, bringing it back to abortion. So, um, it, you know, and it, it's, it's one of these things that is, that is very difficult for, I mean, I'm not asking you to sympathize with them, but it's very difficult for a political party because, you know, about 30% of the country wants to ban abortion, just ban it or, you know, six week ban, uh, you know, one week after conception ban, you know, <laughs> these sort of like absurd kind of bans or, you know, de facto bans. 30% of the country, no one wants to be on an issue with, 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 where, where the electorate is, supports you 30%. But the problem for Republican is, Republicans is, among their voters, it's like 65%. So good luck saying like, oh, for, I guess the abortion thing didn't work out. Next, we're moving on from that. You can't do that. You just, you, you can't do that. Um, so they're in a bind. So we're going to talk about uh, that. And um, in addition to um, uh, being our our co-host, uh, particularly good for this because uh, Kate is one of the uh, best uh, rising star repro rights in addition to reporting about other issues, uh, reporters in the country. So we're going to get deep into that. Then we're also going to talk about things tied to um, January 6th, the indictments, this, uh, this Eastman guy. Who I've been tangling with, I mean, in my own in my own head, right? Um, at least, or on my on my editor's blog. Um, we're going to get into that, but before we do, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Looking for the perfect cup of iced coffee? It's got to be cold brew. Cold brewing makes iced coffee that's smooth, less acidic, and way too easy to sip on all day long. And if you want the very best cold brew, it's got to be Grady's. The secret to their uniquely smooth cold brew is chicory. Chicory gives Grady's cold brew its distinct flavor, rich, slightly nutty, and even a little chocolatey. It lends a subtle sweetness for a well-balanced glass that doesn't need milk or sugar. And with the Grady's Bean Bag Bundle, you can make it at home for less than a dollar a glass. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Kate, you're back. Uh, what are we talking about? So... You know, AP ended up calling the Ohio race at 9 p.m. last night, which is an hour and a half um, after polls closed in Ohio. And there were some kind of informal markers even quicker than that. You know, you've got your classic um, Dave Wasserman, I've seen enough. And that came like, I don't know, felt like 20 minutes after the polls closed. And it's funny because this is one of those races like that, like you said, there was just really like scant polling. We had maybe two or three polls. It's really hard to tell, um, you know, just kind of amid the like shaky polling landscape. An issue like this is going to be even harder because as we said, it was pretty high turnout, but it's, you know, judging high turnout against sleepy August election. So that's not saying all that much. And it's the kind of issue where it's easy to kind of gauge how people who are super politically tied in are viewing the, the issue. But 
it's a little bit weedy because as you said, it's like this was kind of the technical threshold vote that is not directly related to the abortion vote, but obviously is related to it. And then you had Republicans kind of muddying the waters because I think they realized that making this about abortion was going to be a loser. So they tried um, and our our colleague Hunter and I did some various reporting on this, but they tried to wrap in all this kind of unrelated culture war stuff, particularly the anti-trans stuff, saying that, you know, if this initiative to raise the threshold to 60%, if that fails, you're going to have kids getting sex change operations without parental consent. And, you know, Hunter kind of asked the group that was behind this ad campaign, you know, what does that mean? And you can like tell how circuitous a route you have to take to get there. You know, they're like, well, uh, groups like the ACLU have a history of, you know, uh, pushing for sex change operations in children, which is, first of all, not true. But then also, so this whole fear mongering thing is predicated on the idea that hypothetically, maybe someone will propose a ballot initiative that will get through all the procedural hurdles and the signature gathering requirements to get on the ballot that would, you know, take away kind of parental consent requirements or something. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like completely kind of pulled out of thin air. And I think that was a good sign that in this case, the Vote Yes campaign just had a much more convoluted pitch to make because they couldn't say what they're really doing, which is we're going to make it harder for you, the voters, to amend your own constitution. So they tried a little bit of the, you know, we want to keep out of state special interests out of our politics. It was like, that's not really that captivating to people. You had the, the, you know, our constitution is sacred and shouldn't be easily tampered with. But like, I think people already kind of understand that it's hard to amend. It's not like just anyone can do it. Um, so then they did a little bit abortion stuff, but half abortion stuff and half trying not to talk about the abortion stuff in a kind of a microcosm of this dynamic we've been talking about. And then you have the, you know, the trans fear mongering and like put that all together. And like, that is a pretty convoluted and confusing message that you're trying to give people because they are trying to kind of get in the culture warrior people and then also get in like the chamber of commerce Republicans and and kind of do a message that is palatable to everyone. Whereas if you're the no campaign, you've just got so many fallbacks. You've got the like, just keeping the status quo, which is a pretty powerful thing, right? You've got this is about democracy. And then for some people, you've got this is about abortion. And then for other people, like a big part of this movement were labor groups in Ohio. So it's this is about hiking the minimum wage. You know, this is about marijuana legalization. It's just it's an easier sell because it's like you can kind of more reasonably tailor this argument to whatever people's pet issues are. Because Ohio is one of the most drastically gerrymandered state houses in the country, I think second most. So kind of any of these popular proposals, they're not going to get through this state house. These are like super far right people. So you just you have a an argument kind of stacked on top of each other that's going to attract a much wider swath of people. And then kind of you have all that. Plus, as you mentioned in the intro, you know, there's just kind of like juice and enthusiasm that all things abortion give voters right now. And especially in Ohio, where this ballot initiative route is is the only way they're going to have abortion rights. So it is it also has that kind of existential note on top of it. It's interesting that I mean, what you've just described is really captures where the restrictionists are politically right now, because in a culture war context, no one cares. No one cares. 
Now, obviously, a lot of people care a lot about abortion rights, but I mean in the sense of, you know, people go up with ads about, you know, your son came home and suddenly he's a girl, you know, there's a, that, that is obviously a very complex issue, but that's jarring to a lot of people. You get people's attention. You can really fear monger about that. I think we all recognize this, whatever you're, wherever you are on the spectrum of parental rights, all the kind of stuff. It has a lot of charge. It's a new thing for a lot of people. It, it is frightening to a lot of people. You just can't, you can't have an ad like, and then she got an abortion. Wah, 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 wah. You know, just no one cares. No one, no one, that doesn't, the people who, there is a third of the country who think abortion should be illegal. They know exactly where they stand. We know where they stand. There just aren't that many of them. But the idea that there will be places in the state where women can get abortions that just it it doesn't have the charge that conservatives use when they do these kind of ballot referendums. I mean, I remember, um, you know, uh, back in the '90s and '80s, Republicans would do they would do these things about affirmative action. They would do them about immigrants. They would do it about you know there was a the a, a sort of uh, you know the transformative issue in California. And I'm not going to remember, I think it's Prop 187. I think it was in, can't remember if it was in 1994 or 1996. I can't, in any case, California used to be what we would now call a purple state. And um, P. Wilson uh, got, or I guess he initially, it wasn't initially his thing, but he kind of got behind it. A very draconian anti-immigrant um, state proposition. And it won. And it basically allowed him, I think it basically turbocharged his reelection. So it was a big winner for him. And again, this is, I, I, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on, exa- on the exact details, even though I was watching this all very closely at the time. In any case, it was a big winner in the near term for conservatives, anti-immigration people. But basically what it did, it created, it politicized California's Hispanic population. And the state has never been the same. There's a lot of reasons why California is as blue a state as as it is now. But that is really a turning point, this Pyrrhic victory. Um, In any case, uh, in a different political world, it was Republicans who loved referendum, right? And And would turbocharge their their elections around them. Remember, back in 2004, a key thing that allowed George Bush to win re-election, although, it's, again, it's always hard to say exactly what the, what the key thing was, a big thing was uh, state referenda about gay marriage. And one of the critical ones was in Ohio. That was, they got these, Carl Rove did a great job getting these on the ballot everywhere for the November uh, 2004 election. You get a lot of people out, but now clearly it's uh, it's Democrats who Mm -hmm. want these because they're the ones who have the issues that um, there's a lot of public support for, but are jammed up in gerrymandered state legislatures. Or in some cases, it's not even that they're gerrymandered exactly. It's, you know, because think about it this way. 
J.D. Vance, this like feral douchebag, right? Who 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 won for Senate? Not a good, not even a good candidate. Running against a really good candidate, Tim Ryan, the Democrat, he won pretty handily. That's not a gerrymandered thing. That's just the state, right? Sometimes it's just which team are you on? Even if you want abortion to be legal. Um, anyway, uh, things are different today. Yeah. And a really interesting wrinkle in the Ohio race is the degree to which it became like the first battleground in the 2024 Senate election there, which we know is going to be a huge one because Sherrod Brown is up for reelection. It's, you know, in the top three kind of most vulnerable seats that Democrats have to defend, not because of Brown, who's kind of proven himself to be such an idiosyncratic Democrat that he's maintained like impressive statewide victories when nobody else can seem to manage it, but because it's just getting redder, you know, it's kind of suffering from the inverse of the phenomenon that's making, you know, Georgia bluer um, and some of these other states where you've got population growth, you've got influx of young people, you've got the suburbs bluening, and like all of that is kind of the opposite in Ohio. Um, But you had Frank LaRose, who was currently the Ohio Secretary of State and is running against Brown in 2024, made himself the poster boy of this issue. And honestly, it was odd from the beginning. And I'm putting aside here the fact that he's Secretary of State and perhaps he shouldn't be politicizing like the nonpartisan bits of his current job. But even aside from that, there was never a lot of confidence that issue one was going to pass, even from the beginning. You know, I've been talking to the kind of um, groups that are started to get the abortion piece on the ballot and then had to kind of transition into campaigning against this as well because the two are so linked. And they were always just like, well, you know, it acknowledging the hardships of the legislature put this on the schedule for August for a reason. They're hoping like no one pays attention and and that's always an uphill battle and everything. But there's a pretty rich history of these kind of proposals failing miserably, even in red states, you know, where they're kind of ostensibly aligned with Republicans. I mean, it's failed in Arkansas and South Dakota. Like voters just don't like the idea of disempowering themselves uh, for some crazy reason. So from the beginning, it was clear this was going to be an uphill battle. And you already had abortion as the big kind of energy producing piece of it. But LaRose, for whatever reason, just ran headlong at this, like made himself the biggest champion. Even you had the governor, Mike DeWine, kind of being a little hands off, being like, I don't necessarily want to really hitch my wagon to this one. But LaRose was all about it. He called on, you know, Bernie Moreno and and other people in the primary to like pony up a million dollars each to give to the Vote Yes campaign. He was talking all the time about the sweat equity he's put in and how he's barnstorming the cu- or the state, you know, trying to rile up support. And he was going to have a press event when he cast his ballot, you know, as if he's like a presidential candidate or something, <laughs> which, by the way, he canceled that press event because uh, his team got wind that Vote No protesters were going to show up and like heckle. Um, so he you know, profile and courage decided to vote later in the day. But anyway, he just like made this a big thing. And to the point where, you know, Moreno is being like, you're the secretary of state. Can you like focus on your job, you know? And it's just, it was such a weird first thing to pick because it was, I mean, like I said, we didn't have a lot of polling. We didn't know for sure, but 
everyone kind of knew that it was going to be a much tougher get for the vote yes side than the vote no side. And here you've got this guy who was probably kind of the presumptive front runner. He's definitely not as well funded as some of the others, but kind of has the most like traditional He's like the establishment exactly. solid candidate guy who the the power players want to run right. against Jared and Brown. had gotten his name out there in terms of like, you know, in standing up to the big lie stuff in 2020, which he has since kind of really tried to get back in the big liars, good graces. But he, he also had some, he had something of a national profile because of that. But yeah, he just like chose to put it all on the line for this issue, which then he obviously got walloped on. And now it's going to be, you know, he's going to have to field questions about like, did this represent bad judgment? Like, why did your effort fail so spectacularly? It was just, it was a bizarre kind of first fight to choose. It It, it is strange because, you know, you you talked about it through the prism of other ballot initiatives about taking away the right to do ballot initiatives or to make it much harder. And those have had a bad track record. The other prism is abortion rights yeah. referendums. And as we've seen, those have gone down in flames in some pretty red, you know, in some pretty red states. So as you say, kind of like we didn't know and and that's going to make everybody kind of nervous. But like, just if you watch these things, you had to figure it was going to be a pretty tough one. And yeah, I, it, it's I don't know why he went out on that limb. Um, and and just for context for our listeners, you know, this is a guy who, you know, when when someone like Mitch McConnell looked at looked at this race, he would say, I want the LaRose guy, you know, mm-hmm. didn't go not too Trumpy, you know, had a little a little pushback, you know, enough pushback on big lie stuff not to be the scary uh, uh What's Lake's first name? Carrie uh, Lake. <laughs> Carrie Lake. Uh, Carrie Lake in 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 Arizona. Um, Who uh, came to Ohio to campaign for the vote yes campaign? By the yeah, way, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, not not that got a kind of you know traditional pre-Trump conservative um, you know thing, and and so he's kind of. I, I think the other two big candidates are basically either either formally self-funding or, you know, they have, they've got a lot of money behind them. Um, And now uh, I I think that the obvious line of attack that the other Republicans will use against him is that the state spent a fair amount of money putting this on. I mean, you also have a lot of, a lot of pro-life groups who poured in a lot of money and just lit it on fire basically. But in terms of political traction, you know, it, Putting on a statewide Ohio's big state cost millions of dollars put on an election. And this was only for this. So they're going to say, like, dude, what was that about? Right. And, and, and so uh, I was saying in a in a in a um, in a in a in a in a in a post about this, um, you know, I don't think it would. It's not that this would necessarily hurt him in a race, a general election against Sherrod Brown, but he may not get to that election. He may go down in the primary. And and I think that, um, what is it? There's one of the candates is, is he one of the Dolans? Like the- uh, Yep, Matt the, Dolan, they, a state yeah, senator. Okay. Yeah. And, and his family owns what's now the Guardians um, mm-hmm. up, in, up in Cleveland. And then there's another more Trumpy guy who, I don't know, owns auto dealerships or something like that. Yeah. And so what you see here is the Republicans, because of 
the choice issue may get boxed into kind of a 2022 replay where they've got a really vulnerable Democrat, but they end up, you know, nominating kind of a wacky dude and he loses. Now, you know, Sherrod Brown is one of these, you know, to me, and I'm sure to many of our listeners, Sherrod Brown isn't just any Democratic senator. You really don't want to lose him. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he is, uh, he is a special senator. It's very true. He kind of has, he's got his own brand in Ohio and he's done really well. Um, but Ohio has been trending very hard Republican and, um, you know, he was last up in 2018. Obviously that was kind of a, not quite a wave year for a Democrat, but that was a pretty good, you know, kind of anti-Trump year. I'm not trying to make the argument against uh, against Brown's re-election. I mean, I really, really hope he wins, but that's a tough one. That is a tough one. And um, what a Republican friend of mine told me last night, and it's hard for me to have a good argument against it, in, in 2022, Republicans feel that a really crappy candidate against a good Democratic candidate and, and J.D. Vance won by, I don't know, 10 points. I mean, I don't know if it was 10 points, but it was substantial. I mean, I think the counter to that is that Tim Ryan's not an incumbent. Mm-hmm. You know, he ran a good campaign, but he's not an incumbent. Um, I think this would be either Brown's third or fourth term. I can't, I can't remember... Um, Exactly. Uh, but, you know, this has repercussions. And we're, and we're actually seeing this in, I forget the, you know, it seems like Carrie Lake may run in, mm-hmm. in Arizona. And, and it, it all, yeah, okay. So, show, so, you know, and she still thinks she's like, she's got like a government in exile. She still thinks she, she's like Trump, right? She has her own little mini big lie. Right. Um, and it and it seems to me, I certainly get the sense that Kirsten Cinema, I don't think she's gonna run. She doesn't want to end her career getting like eight percent as a spoiler, right? So you have a lot of things coming together now um in this in a very, very hard Senate map for Democrats. But you have things coming together. Things look a lot like twenty twenty two, where Republicans just run a lot of really crappy candidates and let um, a lot of marginal Democrats uh, make it through. So the we'll other see. piece about LaRose I forgot to mention is that um, earlier this year, the Ohio legislature had passed a bill saying we're not going to have August special elections anymore because they're expensive, they're low turnout, like people expect to vote in November, they don't expect to vote in the summer. And LaRose you know, gave speeches at the time being like, this is a waste of taxpayer money and we're not going to do it and blah, blah, blah. Oh, Low so he was actually... So he's got all his quotes out there that he's going to be like pilloried with. I almost I like I honestly wonder if he had some kind of like big donor pressure to get behind this or something, because it just seems in every way just like such a stepping on the rake for no reason. It it is. I mean, I was kind of underselling it before because as we as we've as we've both said a number of times, the polling on these races is always very unclear, scattershot. You're you're pulling a low turnout election, blah 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 blah. But I mean, you and I have been following these closely. I mean, it was kind of obvious this was going to go down in flames, right? Because it's not Ohio's a big a big diverse state. It's not like I mean, it's not like Kansas, where it also went down in flames, right? I mean, it's, or Kentucky, it, yeah, yeah, Kentucky. And I mean, Kentucky was closer, but still, it you know, it 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 went down. So yeah, I mean, it it 
it is hard to figure. I mean, what, um, it's a really good question. Was it some, I mean, in the, th- the, the other thing, and you alluded to this before that to the extent that he needed to be dyed in the wool pro-life to maybe get the nomination or whatever, he had a perfectly good excuse. He's like, dude, dude, I- I'm, no one's more pro-life than me, but I'm secretary of state. Can't go there. Mm-hmm. I'm like running the elections. I can't, can't, can't go there, but he did go there. So yeah, it's, it's a mystery. I, I, yeah. Sort so of inexplicable of- to me. Now, looking ahead, um, there are kind of a bunch of other states that have quite restrictive abortion regimes and then also allow citizen-initiated ballot proposals. Um, Those are Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and South Dakota. But those are just ones where it's legal to do this, not where they've set it up, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even though there are kind of efforts to varying degrees in all of these states, um, which is what I was going to get to is that in Florida, they're kind of already on track to gather the number of signatures to have it on the ballot in 24. Um, In Arizona, they just released like the text of their constitutional amendment yesterday. Those are the two that are kind of the farthest along and that will it seems more likely than not we'll have um, an abortion-related proposal on the ballot in 24. Interestingly, Ohio, some of the people behind this told me, wanted to go in 23 because they knew they'd be the only game in town and then would get kind of the national abortion-related money, whereas 24, um, you know, you, you get the benefit of having a high turnout presidential cycle, but there was always kind of the assumption that there are going to be a lot of these efforts in 24. So you're going to have to kind of compete. But Arizona and Florida, I mean, Florida to a lesser degree now, but, you know, it it does kind of make sense that these places that already know they're going to be, you know, big money drains, big battleground states um, are proposing their their efforts then. Um, And then you have kind of a burgeoning effort in Missouri, which is funny because in Missouri, they're kind of taking the Ohio approach to things, which is they're both kind of slow walking. The Republican officials are slow walking the process of approving things so they can hopefully like delay it and punt it until after 24. And they're also considering doing exactly what Ohio did and announcing a initiative to raise the threshold to 57%. And now, interestingly, this kind of came up during the term. Um, and it, the 60% threshold like got through one of the chambers of the House, I think. And then the Senate did their version, which was different. And then the, at the conference committee, they kind of settled on 50 57% up being the right that sounds so weird. That seems, yeah, that seems, I mean, that almost seems like did they look at the most recent poll and like I'm abortion sure. is 56%, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean. But it kind of like, it flamed out and died when they were trying, when they were considering doing this. And a lot of it was because, you know, even some Republicans were like, people don't like these. They're not going to like it here. It's probably going to fail and we're going to look stupid while it fails, you know? So that's kind of like foundering now. And we're not, um, you know, it's kind of unclear whether that'll uh, ever make it out of the legislature. But, you know, it's it's what we've been saying that if you've seen the either the success of a, expanding abortion access or the kind of failure of passing restrictions in places like Kentucky and Kansas and Montana, like, of course, you should put this on the ballot in Arizona and Florida. You know, it's a no brainer. Now, let me ask you this, because it was only it was only a little while into this Ohio build up for this that 
I focused in on it and that, as I understand this in Ohio, you're voting for a specific piece of text that will be added to the state constitution. But I think many of us remember that I don't know what it was five or six years ago, they had a ballot initiative in Florida about enfranchising felons mm-hmm. who had lost their voting rights. It won by a substantial margin. And then the state legislature said, oh, okay, you said to like, just you said to make a law about felons and voting. And they went ahead and just basically completely gutted it at the legislative level. Now, at, at when I was when I was finding out more about the situation in Ohio, At first, I was like, are we sure they're actually going to let this happen? But in that case, as I understand this, it's just, here's the text. It's going to go in like the legislature has nothing to do with it. In which in in, across these different states or like in Florida in 2024, which of them have this thing where specific text in the state constitution done and done versus kind of like we'll we'll tell the we'll ask the legislature to do something and then the legislature can kind of kill it. I mean, it's a real concern. It's funny because um, when I was talking to Ohio people about this one, that's something that I'm, one of them brought up was like, I feel pretty confident that this will pass numerically, but I'm worried that we're going to have kind of a redo of the redistricting situation, right? Where you had even the Ohio Supreme Court kind of tell the legislature, you need to redraw the maps. And they just were like, no, we shan't. And like, we'll just, we'll see what happens, you know? And so she was kind of telling me, like, I hope that the nationwide scrutiny and the kind of like big enthusiasm kind of prevents them from like tampering, you know, like, will that be enough? Um, So, you know, it's not totally clear to me. And also in Florida, you already have a 60% threshold for um, the ballot initiative. Has that always been the case or they just did that recently? I'm trying to remember. I I don't don't quite remember. always been the case. Yeah. Um, and in, in Arizona, they have a heightened threshold, but just for um, tax increases. So, you know, I don't know. It's interesting. It's like, it is this thing where the combination of like gerrymandering and also even the states that kind of have more traditional Republican Supreme Courts, like that's just so quickly going extinct. And all those people are being kind of, as soon as they retire, replaced with like little versions of the U.S. Supreme Court that, you know, we are getting to a place where these like, right-wing legislatures are just little dictatorships, like kind of unbound by anyone. And you're seeing this to the to the kind of most extreme degree with um, Alabama, which just, you know, lost that big Supreme Court case about redistricting, told to redraw their maps. And they're like, okay, we'll redraw it. Here, we did it. There's still one black <laughs> district, you'll note, you know, right, and right, like, right. now it's just, that's, that's just what they produced. And now it's, you know, and it's going to go through a federal court and might end up at the Supreme Court again, where one would think that even, um, you know, the right wingers are going to be like, what the fuck, man? We like just decided this. Um, but we are kind of like witnessing the the full kind of the late stages of what's been going on since 2010, where like the, the radicalization of these legislatures are just now kind of shedding all pretense about being um, accountable to, you know, much less voters, but even, you know, state courts and, and federal courts. Yeah, I mean th- that point you made about uh, about Ohio that many uh, in many states you have, let's say you know post Trump Republican Supreme Courts that are kind of like whatever. But as you say there, the state Supreme Court said no, 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 you can't do this, and the legislature's like, okay, fuck you, and they just did it anyway. <laughs> Sounds so, good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, um, so it's 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 very interesting because you know one of the big 
Warren Court things, uh, Warren Court jurisprudence was what was then called one man, one vote, one person, one vote. The basic point is your, your system in your state has to basically people's vote count, count the same. You know, it's never exactly the same. It can't be, you know, some congressional districts, they don't have all exactly the same number of people. It's not possible to do that given, given, um, given uh, that states have different populations. You've got to, you know, you've you got to get them close to something, but you have to be operating on that principle. And um, in, especially in the South, but not only in the South, um, well into the 20th century, you had state legislatures where it was just, you know, rural votes count 25 times more than urban votes. That's just how it is. Too bad, right? And again, a big Warren Court thing saying you can't do that. You can't do that. That is just, that's, that is, you, you, you can't do that. Um, now, ironically, we still do that in the federal Senate. That's exactly what we do, right? Um, but you do have this broader issue in our politics that is not just gerrymandering. It is also concentration of more progressive, more liberal voters that even if you made totally fair maps in some of these states, Republicans would, you know, you'd have to do sort of a, a reverse gerrymandering to uh, pull out the effect of the largely urban concentration of, of, of more, uh, more bluish, more liberal voters. Um, but you do have this basic issue, as you say, renegade state legislatures where um, electorates overwhelmingly think X. And it's not just kind of like when you, when you give them sort of fishy polls, right, about you know, are you, do you, do you think we should have rules that end school shootings? You know, it's, it's not just that when they actually vote, but you have states legislatures just say no. And, and it's, it's this basic issue of, of, of majority rule that we have. And it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's something central to our politics now that is really unresolved. Totally. Um, and just real quick, before we move on to the Trump stuff, I wanted to mention that one part of this attempted Ohio change, like the threshold thing was the piece that got the most attention and, and rightly, you know, moving into 60%. But the other piece would be that in gathering signatures to get these on the ballot, you would have to get them from every county in Ohio, some percentage from every county versus what it is now, which is some percentage from 44 of the counties. And it's so funny because it's kind of this like small procedural detail that I think slips by. But the issue with it is totally locked into what you're saying right now, which is that in Ohio, like in most states, vast majority of the population lives in the city centers, right? So in, in Ohio, it's 85%, you know, live in the metro areas, which means all of a sudden, now you want to pass a ballot initiative, you've got to get signatures from every like little podunk, most like Trumpiest county you can imagine. And if you fail to get enough signatures from one of those counties, you cannot be on the ballot. Like that is the, the death of your initiative. And it's so funny because this dynamic you're talking about, it's so 
permeates our politics on every single level that I think in some ways we're kind of like blind to it. You have it in the the ways that get a lot of scrutiny in, you know, the Electoral College and the fact that in, in the Senate, Wyoming has two seats, as does California, you know, in these kind of like bigger ways that kind of intrude in life more. But it's across the board on every level, like it's a huge problem that our population is so lopsided, but the power is kind of like distributed evenly or in theory, evenly throughout the, you know, the geographic, uh, you know, bounds. It's I always think of Wisconsin just because I mean, because it's one of the most extreme cases, but I'm not sure it's that different from Ohio mm-hmm. or maybe what or maybe what Pennsylvania was but what is so stri- what has always been so striking to me about Wisconsin that in the last uh, decade plus the Wisconsin state legislature has sort of like oscillated between Republican majority and Republican supermajority usually usually mm-hmm. supermajority and yet when you have statewide races it's a 50-50 state you know Scott Walker would win with like 51 percent. Uh, the, the current Democratic governor wins. He's 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 won twice now. But again, 50 percent. The Senate races are 50 percent. That is something is broken down there. You, it, it, it is absurd that the again, the only question for legislative politics in Wisconsin is whether the governor has any power at all. Because Republicans will always control the state legislature. It's just whether they have a, a supermajority and, you know, highly gerrymandered. And that's why, as we know, we, you covered this for us, uh, that uh, a critical state Supreme Court election. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons it was so critical is that Republicans need the Supreme Court to be run by Republicans because otherwise there's going to be some scrutiny. The fact that, like, people don't get, a, get to elect the legislature. Because it's so gerrymandered, it's this basic, basic thing, and that's really you know we're 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 running out of time to get to the second half of the <laughs> half of the show. You no, know, we're going to go a about, little long today. About, it's okay. about, Jan- about January six, but so much of January six was really about this same issue: whether you could get these gerrymandered state legislatures to say, you know, we just don't feel right about how the election turned out. We're going to switch it. And in practice, the state legislatures, when it came to it, just weren't quite willing, weren't quite willing to go that far. But man, it was close, mm-hmm. real close. Yeah, that's a good segue. And let's we'll start with Eastman and then we can kind of end with some goldsmith dunking. But on, on Eastman, um, Josh, you've been writing about this in in your ed blog and Josh Kavinsky has written about it on the main site. But so Eastman sat down for this interview that I guess was re- released in three parts um, with the guy I'm forgetting his name, but he's the, the head of Claremont, right? Yeah, he's some geo, his name's like Kligenstein or something. He's a big GOP donor. And as a big donor, he's the chairman of the board of the Claremont Institute. So that's right. why he, that's his role in this. And, you know, for whether it be his donor status or his Claremont status that got him this interview, um, co-conspirator number two sat down with him to kind of chat on all things um, related to his kind of theory of, of election overthrow and which included the the really, um, as you put it, uh, I think. Eastman says, hell yeah, we were trying to overthrow the government, you know, his very like candid expressions of what they were trying to do. But then he kind of like tries to root this overthrowing 
of the government, like, well, you know what? It's in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, this is what our founders envisioned. This is an intolerable government. Um, so why don't you kind of like break that down a little bit for, for our listeners? Yeah, well, you know, if, if you haven't seen this interview, and I even seen like a screen capture of the interview or 10 seconds of it, it's, it's very, uh, it, I don't know, it's this, very, you know, they're kind of in a library, the walls are covered with books, and they're, they're kind of reclining, kind of, you know, Bill Buckley style in a little, you know, comfy chairs and, and having these like very Latinate, you know, uh, conversation, you know, it's, 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 it's very genteel and everything. Um, and he's, and the, the Kligenstein guy, and I'm, I don't, I, I'd never really heard of this guy before before this. But anyway, he's walking Eastman uh, through all the stuff. And it's a very funny thing because on the one hand, Eastman is saying all of his legal theories about we had a right to do this and we had a right to do that. But then at a certain point, he can't, he sort of can't help himself. And he goes into this stuff about the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I love the Declaration of Independence as much as the next guy, but he references the part where he talks about the right to overthrow governments. Like, okay, like that is there, but that's not really relevant in the internal legal structure of this government. You can't, you can't be, you can't be in the house and out of the house at the same time. Right. And, uh, it, I think it kind of slipped by people. Cause again, there's so much like, you know, kind of chin scratching and everything in this conversation, but he's saying, we we had to because Joe Biden was too big a threat. And and it says right in the Declaration of Independence, we can we can abolish a government when we want to, if it's if it's become too oppressive. So he kind of comes clean, which is good in a way, right? Um but he's he he's such a he's such a uh I mean it's good that again, it's good that he came clean and said yes. We tried to say it's all these kind of legal theories and all this, all this kind of stuff. But yeah, we'd had enough and we, we didn't want to, we, we, we didn't like the result and we were going to put in a new result. Um, and he's just, he's just a, uh, people with a little intelligence can come up with very ornate explanations and logic puzzles that actually are just make no sense at all. And most of the stuff in there was, was like that. And it's a funny thing because I didn't, I mean, I've been hearing about John Eastman like everyone else has for going on three years now as the kind of the, as the, as the, you know, the brains behind the coup for lack of a better word. And it was only recently that I realized that he's part of that whole kind of Claremont Institute, Claremont Colleges kind of that, that, that thing. I thought he was just like a Chapman university or Pepperdine or one of those kind of like right-wing colleges they have out in Southern California, sort of quasi degree mills. Shouldn't quite say that about Pepperdine, but eh, kind of, um, but I didn't realize he was one of those guys. And, and here's the funny thing. So I actually, I, I, I grew up right there and I actually went to high school in Claremont, uh, in, in that area. And actually one of, um, one of one of my high school teachers was sort of a devotee of the guy who all that Claremont Institute, Claremont Colleges thing. It's about this guy, Harry Jaffa, who is was a disciple of this guy, Leo Strauss, who's this Straussians, West Coast Straussians, East Coast Straussians. There's some interesting people involved in this, but a lot of 
but a lot of very self-regarding people too with, you know, I don't know, Straussians and this and different schools and the little fights they have and everything. So anyway, uh, I was kind of reared in a bit of this stuff through this kind of, through this teacher I really liked in high school. Um, and then when I was, uh, I got an internship after my sophomore year of college at what was then kind of the, the sort of the think tank where all these guys run the Claremont Institute was just starting back then. This would have been like in 1989. All right. So I was a research assistant for, um, Harry Jaffa, who lived into his 90s. He only died in like 2015 or something like that. But he was a pretty old guy in, 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 in 1989. Um, so I was, I was researching for him and this other guy, George Benson. Anyway, I spent the summer kind of shooting the shit with this guy and like Xeroxing things and like looking things up for him and stuff like that. It was a, it was a, a very interesting guy, but I kind of know these people. And, and um, it's amazing that their bullshit has, has, has kind of intersected with our politics in um in in the way that it has and i i didn't i didn't realize that eastman was like was part of that thing you know that specific thing and it's wild because it now seems like he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna get indicted on some pretty serious felonies it sounds like the part of the interview that really gets me is when he is talking about the intolerable state of things right and how like when a citizenry is kind of put in this like in this sufferable position, they've got no choice. It is the noble thing to do to kind of throw off the yoke of the government. And it's like, cool. So what like threshold of the citizenry have to agree with that for it to be appropriate to throw over the government, right? I mean, I mean, kind of by his theory, I guess you're saying like 30, 35% tops are the kind of discontents by the time you're allowed to sack the capital you know i guess if you really if you really want to go i mean one of the things i did in the in this post was say how this was a this was a big thing in the first decades of the american republic because you have this founding document which is not a legal document it's a it's sort of a a, a very high-toned press release <laughs> where they where we announce like what we're doing and why we're doing it okay and it does make this argument that which which was much more radical at the time than it is now, which is saying that governments only exist to serve the governed, right? They don't, they don't, like the King of England basically owns England. It doesn't matter, like, who, that's all that matters, really. A little more complicated in England, but that's, that's the world that existed in, 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 um, in the 1700s. And, and what the authors of the Declaration of Independence were saying was that no, if it's not working for the governed, you just you move on. You start over. That's cool. That's okay. And it does say that. Um, but what in the in the early political history of the American Republic, you have this kind of problem because everybody can't do that all the time, or else you can't you can't really run everything. So there's this kind of question of okay, it was cool then, but now we've got another thing going on. So you can't just like be declaring independence right and left every time you don't get what you want. So how's this work? And this has to do with like contract theory and all the kind of stuff that people thought a lot about in the 17 and 1800s. Um, what they came up with is that that's not a legal right. We've got a constitution. You can't, if you break the law, you break the law. It's a revolutionary right. 
everybody at any time can just say, I'm out. And you don't need any particular percentage and whatever. Just anybody can do anything. You better hope you win because if you don't, you're in trouble. But just morally, you have the right to say, I've had enough. Um, And again, revolutionary right, legal right, constitutional right. They're different things. And this comes up up several times over the course of early part of the 19th century um, in the United States. And it's a big thing. um, It's a big thing in the Civil War. Because the secessionists try to try to hang their hat on this, like oh, Declaration of Independence. What could be you know what could be more American? Um, and Lincoln is very clear on this. Like everybody has a right to you know you can do whatever you want, but the government has a right to kind of you know you can try to overthrow the government. Government has a right to say no, right? Um, and so it's there, and he's right in the sense that like. If you decide it's not working, you, the Declaration of Independence says you have this basic moral right to say I'm out. Um, but again, government has the right to say, no, you're not out. <laughs> right. And, um, but what was so interesting about it to me is, again, that is coming clear and saying it's a coup. You're trying to overthrow the government. This isn't like a like a really novel legal theory or something like that. You're trying to overthrow the government, and it's good that you have come clean and said that. It's not a good argument in court. <laughs> not at all, right? I do just, I kind of like the Eastman team squeamishness, though, like the idea that you know the Declaration says we can overthrow the or we can try to overthrow the government, so we can. It's like okay, cool, sure. Um, so, like, by this reading, is King George supposed to have just been like, all right, high five, lads. Like, we won this one as you were a good game. You know, yeah. see you next time. I like yeah. that he, like, kind of um, curtails the the ramifications of your action bit, the government gets to fight back bit. Like, I, I don't think he endorses that part quite so full-throatedly at this particular moment. Well, it's 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 something that it, it is... It is it is uh, more than alluded to in the document itself, but was also clear. The authors of the Declaration of Independence, the people in the Constitutional Congress, had no unclarity about the fact that they were committing treason in their relationship to Great Britain. And that if they lost, they would all be hanged. They were all in. And again, this, they said this all the time. Our lives, our fortune, our honor, we're all in. There's no going back. And so it is ironic that um, Eastman, and again, there's a lot of grandiosity in that world he's from. Um, They're very hardcore. They're revolutionaries. But then they're like complaining about being canceled or that they're being, (laughs) or that they're being indicted. And like, dude, you're lucky you're just being indicted, right? Coups get messy. Yeah. So, as as is often the case, people want they want their their uh, their revolution and their mulligan at the <laughs> right. same time, or kind of like you know a coup five second rule. Yeah, it didn't it it, it didn't work. So come on, it it I, you're fine. It's I fine. picked it up really quickly, and I can still eat it. You know, just so. blow it off. It's fine. Yeah, it's it's okay. Um, so to end with, we're gonna uh, we're gonna finish on this uh, Jack Goldsmith column in the New York Times that uh, our listeners may have seen because it, I mean, in the the kind of 
burning wreckage that is Twitter or X. It got a lot of uh, airtime from people kind of dunking on it. And the, the title is something along the lines of, uh, you know, prosecuting Trump is a terrible idea. And in it, um, Goldsmith kind of, his basic argument is one we've actually seen from conservatives a whole bunch of times, but it's just, you know, the, this uh, prosecution will increase the politicization of the DOJ, will convince a wide swath of the country that um, that institution is, you know, not to be trusted, that it was a political endeavor, um, that Biden was having his kind of henchmen go after Trump, and that will be so deeply damaging um, to our institutions and to our, our social fabric that it's kind of better not to do it. And then he wraps in all these kind of other, you know, like the New York prosecution was quote unquote, dubious, you know, um, the DOJ shouldn't have slow walked this, you have Hunter Biden's sweetheart deal and all of these things will just kind of increase the atmosphere of distrust um, and continue to kind of degrade our institutions and our uh, citizenry, you know, our, our common citizen trust and all the rest. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, there's, um, there's no, there's no end of Trumpy freaks who have every, you know, who rationalize everything Trump does. And we hear those things all the time. Um, they're, they're best disregarded, right? In the same way that you don't answer trolls on Twitter and stuff like that, or you shouldn't, even though I do constantly. Uh, but the thing is, Jack Goldsmith is not that guy. Um, he is a very, a very, uh, he's, he's a big time national security law expert. Um, he, that doesn't mean you agree with everything, but he's 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 not a hardcore partisan or doesn't seem like a hardcore partisan. So when he says something like this, it gets attention uh, and I guess rightly gets attention. But the the, the article was um, or the column was just sloppy and uh, lazy because, yeah, it's a big deal and it is not a good thing at all for the current president to be have his DOJ prosecuting the the previous guy. Of course, that's bad. Of course, that's damaging. Um, everybody knows that. Everybody knows there's lots of reasons why you don't want to get there. But his column basically just ignored the other side of the equation. Is it really the case? A president loses re-election and then tries to have a coup to stay in office anyway, and and th- you just you don't do anything? Well, that that's it. I mean, to me, it is a big deal to do what is happening right now for exactly the reasons he says. You don't want to let that genie out of the bottle where there's, a, you know, in this kind of in the same sense that we have with impeachment now. I don't think anybody really think. I mean, it's a joke to think that anything is with Joe Biden is anywhere, but, but they want to impeach Joe Biden because, because Trump was impeached. You got to impeach everybody now. And, and to me kind of like, who cares? I don't, I really don't care. Indicting. You don't want to get into that pattern, but again, Republican government doesn't work. If the people can, can use violence and state power and fraud to reject elections. So to me, again, the the comparative weighting is pretty clear that uh, you have to do this for the reasons that all of us have probably talked about with each other and with our families for the last for the last two years. But with his column, he just ignored that other part and kind of like, oh, we can't politicize. You know, 
politicizing the DOJ, criminalizing politics. Yeah, no shit, dude. No kidding. But that's where we are. And um, to even be in the conversation, you've got to address those other points. It surely cannot be the case that you have immunity for a coup because you were president or because you want to be president again or because you're on Twitter or True Social saying the indictment isn't fair. That, that can't be the case because then everything falls apart. So it's just, uh, you know, um, I try to, I'm, I'm perfectly capable of being <laughs> nasty and aggressive with people who I think are just liars and terrible people. But uh, in this case, uh, again, I think, I think what, what he thinks and says is important. I just think it was, uh, you know, he didn't address the real question. And I think that was lazy. It keeps reminding me of when people kind of say, like, this investigation is unprecedented. The indictment is unprecedented. It's like, well, yeah, but... Who got us there? So was the underlying action, right? It's like, it's so weird to me to kind of like focus on the ramifications as being the kind of like crazy first in a generation time it's happening. It's like, well, yeah, because like when the first person does something unprecedented, therefore the reaction is also unprecedented, you know? And there is some like, just like kind of weird, snarky stuff in the column as well. You know, he kind of opens by being like, as fun as it may be for some to watch this, which it's like, yeah, it's okay, shut up. Like it's he did a coup, relax. Yeah. Like people yeah. are allowed to want to see justice for that. Um, he also does some weird kind of like casting of aspersions on Jack Smith's motives and stuff, all of which I think kind of like muddy the waters and make it all seem a little bit like, you know, right wing agitator ish, which, as you say, doesn't seem to be his kind of usual MO. Yeah, that, that was the kind of thing that I, I when for those of you who haven't read the column, you know, he says like, well, look how the Mueller investigation went. That was that was pretty lame. Well, really? I mean, that, that doesn't seem like facts and evidence to me um, that, you know, Hunter Biden getting a sweetheart. Well, not. I mean, dude, really? Like, uh, also, isn't the Mueller thing the thing he professes to want, which is that the criticism of Mueller is that he was so overcautious that he ended up being in, ineffective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a case where, look, uh, Goldsmith is a Republican. He's definitely not a Trumper by any stretch. He's 100% not. But we all kind of have an osmotic relationship with our milieu. And my only explanation of those comments is that, because I'm not saying you've got to be like, you know, Hunter Biden's biggest fan, but this whole thing about, I mean, look, they bent over backwards to leave this Trump, Trump appointed guy in charge of the investigation for like two and a half years. The idea that this was like a kind of like a, you know, that they had it wired, that they kind of, it was all agree, you know, really that, that, you know, but I, I do think that, you know, that was necessary for him to sustain the larger argument. Well, you know, after all these, after all these terrible errors that at the department of justice, now you're going to do one more thing that is just going to, you know, bring it into more disrepute. Well, is, is that really where we're at here? 
is is has has the DOJ really and even even the idea that there is a DOJ it changes a lot in its leadership from from I mean let's be clear we're talking about things that happen in the Trump DOJ um is it really the case that you know federal law enforcement and the FBI and the DOJ man just just they've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar so many times you're going to you're going to do yet another thing that's just going to um you know sow suspicion about or or is it really that the country for going on a decade has been dealing with this lawless criminal would be dictator and it's been a bumpy ride for our institutions to deal with that and I think that's the reality of what's going on. That doesn't mean you can't find mistakes in one, you know, in one warrant or something like that. But yeah, is he going like full, uh, you know, full Durham investigation? I, I don't, I, I, I don't, um, I don't know what that's about. I, it's, 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 it's weird. And at the end of that column, he says this thing about, you know, Trump's election shenanigans. I mean, it's not a shenanigan. I mean, that is just kind of like, ugh. Things got a little messy. I mean, give me a break, dude. I mean, yeah. it, you know, the, the the law has to be able to defend itself. And there are people in this country who recognize that Trump is a lawless and a lawless person and a threat to our system of government. At the end of the day, it's about elections right? The people can decide to make decisions that, that kind of shut us down. Um, but he certainly did sound in some of those kind of throwaway lines, like someone who's operating outside of that basic understanding of where we are and that, you know, everybody makes their choices. It's also just like the gazillionth iteration of people being like, well, we need to kind of treat Trump with kid gloves here because he was the president and that matters. And it's like, they are, okay? They have treated him with kid gloves throughout in every one of these cases. If he had been treated like a normal dude, he would be in jail and he's not. And that is manifested in all kinds of ways, including, you know, the National Archives being like, pretty please give us the documents back and giving him like all this like scheduling leeway. I mean, it just manifests in every single sense. And it's this, you know, he's not doing quite as much of the Trump aggrievement tour as the kind of usual actors but the, you know there's some of that as well his argument is more of a kind of like historical institutional vantage point but trump's still the person we're talking about here yeah and i i think with um you know there's there's treating trump with kid gloves but a key part of his argument is this is going to make a big chunk of the country not trust federal law enforcement, not trust the Department of Justice, not trust the FBI. And like, yeah, there is some of that. But again, what he doesn't reckon with is what about the people who think the results of elections are sacrosanct and operate on that basis? What will they think? What will they think if there's are, are there, there's always this issue, this, this comes, and this is something that some people more than I do think this is this is a basic uh, a basic crisis in the country and in and in American political culture more generally a basic crisis of you never it is very dangerous to the law 
to make the people who follow the law feel like maybe they're chumps. Like, am I the chump here? Is it really okay to do anything? Is it okay not to pay your taxes? Is it okay to like, um, you know, you get subpoenaed for stuff and you hide it and you, you light it on fire? Am I the chump for following the rules? That is at least as great a threat to institutions, to the rule of law. You have to vindicate the idea that the law means something. And again, what he just doesn't take any cognizance of, and cognizance of, not that he's got to agree with me or agree with anybody else, but you got to at least address the issue. What about the people who follow the law? What about the people who see that the sitting president thought he was just going to pull some bullshit and, and stay president even though he lost the election? I mean, it's really a remarkable thing that now going on a decade, we've had two elections where quite explicitly, one of the candidates kind of says, ah, we'll see what happens if I lose, you know, to kind of keep it open. And, um, you know, that is, uh, that is, for all that we had the 2000 election, that's a new thing in this country. Yeah, you can have, you know, litigation and whatever, but this idea that we'll see what happens. Dude, that's the, you can't have that. And uh, again, we're all sort of, we become used to it now. Imagine if both say like, I'm going to, you know, the answer is like, are you going to, are you going to, you know, accept defeat? You say, of course I would accept defeat. It's not going to happen. I'm going to win. But of course I do. Blah, you know, the basic statements of homage to the to the system of government we operate in, which is you lose, you move on. And um, to the extent that that Goldsmith is saying, because the other part of that is you move on, but you're allowed to move on. You go back to what you were doing. And he's saying here, well, you don't want this risk that you're going to, that the new guy's going to come after you. Well, it's a two-way street. You lose, you move on. And if you've got someone who's who's introducing this new set of rules, which is maybe I won't move on. Maybe I'll see what I can do. Maybe maybe I'll talk to my friends in this state or that state and they'll just decide I won anyway. The whole system can't can't function that way. The election brings finality and he has introduced what he wants to be a new set of rules that it's not finality. It's I'll see what I can do and and republics can't survive that. Simple as that. All right. All right. Well, I'm I'm almost I'm almost breaking my rules and getting as grandiose as those those <laughs> those Straussian douchebags over in Claremont. So I'm going to try to reel myself in. <laughs> I want to remind everybody that uh, remember the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, twenty five percent any order if you use the promo code TPM at uh, Grady's Cold I guess that's all we all got. Right. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.
Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.